Hello everyone, my name is Wendy Myers. Welcome to the Myers Detox Podcast. You can find me and tons of free information on how to detox and why on earth you wanna detox at myersdetox.com. Today we have my friend Alex Howard on the show. He is the founder of the Optimum Health Clinic specializing in chronic fatigue and they have just had tens of thousands of people go through their clinic, how our Alex is incredibly knowledgeable about chronic fatigue and stress and how to recover from it. And he's going to be discussing with us today the maladaptive stress response, which is how the body deals with different stressors and has an inappropriate response like food sensitivities or shutting down like chronic fatigue, the mitochondria shut down, and all the other different adaptations that people don't like. People develop unpleasant symptoms as a result. And we also talk about mindset, psychology, and also how to identify stressors in our environment and just how to adjust your mindset, what role psychology plays in recovering from physical health issues and diagnoses, and how this all ties into detoxification. A really, really interesting show today. And some of the top takeaways for the show are gonna be um, essentially how stress is one of the biggest challenges in recovering from fatigue and illness and how resetting the nervous system is one of the first steps in recovery of illness or chronic fatigue and to a successful detox, and how to identify stressors to get the body out of sympathetic nervous system overdrive. A lot of people are just tired but wired. They're kind of stuck in their fight or flight sympathetic nervous system and why physical health issues do not always have a physical solution. Many get better or have a shift in their physical health with mindset, with psychological tools and stress reduction techniques. So really, really interesting show today. I know a lot of you guys are concerned listening to this podcast about heavy metal toxicity or how to detox, where to start. So I created a quiz. Uh, You can take this quiz at heavymetalsquiz.com. It takes just a couple of minutes. And after you take the quiz and get your results, you get a free video series that talks about why you want to detox, where you are in your general body burden of toxicity, and what the next steps are, how to get started. And just an incredible video series that I created for you guys, because this is you know one of the most common questions I get is, I want to detox, how do I do it, where do I begin? So I answer all of those questions in this free video series. Just go to heavymetalsquiz.com. Our guest today, Alex Howard, is founder and CEO of the Optimum Health Clinic, OHC, one of the world's leading integrative medical clinics, which he set up in 2004 after his own seven-year battle with chronic fatigue syndrome. OHC's team of 20 full-time practitioners have supported over 10,000 patients with fatigue in 40-plus countries. Alex and the team have published research in a number of leading journals, including the British medical journal Open, Medical Hypotheses and Psychology, and Health. 
uh, a randomized controlled on the OHC approach to fatigue is currently underway in the UK with NHS patients. So I'm assuming it's a randomized clinical uh, controlled study is currently underway. Along with founding and leading the OHC practitioner teams for the past 16 years, Alex is also an experienced psychology practitioner, having led the therapeutic coaching practitioner program since 2005, training the next generation of psychology practitioners. Alex is also, also has a daily vlog and podcast, which includes interviews, film sessions with his patients, and inspirational recovery stories. You can find out more at alexhoward.tv. Alex, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Wendy. It's nice to be on the, on the other side of interviewing. After yes. Doing a, <laughs> well, why don't we start with you telling us about your personal journey with chronic fatigue syndrome and the role that psychology played in your recovery? Yeah, sure. I think the first thing to say is, well, I got chronic fatigue when I was um, 16 years old. And certainly at that point, specializing in fatigue or psychology, neither of those things were anywhere near my career plan. I think my my uh, parents' career plan was probably that I'd be an accountant or something rather less interesting <laughs> than what I ended up doing. Um, and really, I I woke up, I had quite a sudden onset. I woke up one morning and it was almost like, if there's a plug of energy into the body, someone had just ripped that out. And initially, it just it was assumed that I had a virus or some kind of um, kind of um, kind of flu situation. And weeks passed, and then months passed, and really nothing was was changing. And I ended up somewhat out of the blue getting this diagnosis of chronic fatigue. And it was such a shocking diagnosis in the sense that I'd been so used to, you go to the doctor, you're unwell, you get a diagnosis, you get a pill, you take the pill and you feel better. And to be 16 years old and have this quite scary diagnosis, symptoms that were utterly debilitating at the time, I was at times bedbound and when I wasn't bedbound, I was certainly almost housebound. And to kind of look to the future from that point of view and realize that this is something that people sometimes never recover from. And I've been a super active teenager that loved playing sports and played guitar in a, in a, in a pretty bad punk rock band, but, but loved life. And it was, uh, the only thing that was offered to me by the, the doctor at, on the day that I was diagnosed, he said, you know, we can offer you counseling. And that to me felt like the greatest insult somebody ever could have given to me because I, I knew I had this very real physical illness and to have it inferred that really this was just in my mind and I had to, either I had just to learn to come to terms with the fact I was never gonna recover or this idea that the cause of what was happening was my mind and my emotions. So I, I think I went to one session of counseling and was like, this is definitely not something that's for me. Yeah. And, <laughs> <laughs> and so then um, two years passed. And in those two years, really nothing improved physically. But I think psychologically and emotionally, things got worse because I wasn't tired because I was depressed. But when you are completely, utterly debilitated, 
if you're a normal human being, you will start to feel depressed and fed up and anxious and concerned and worried about what your life has become. And so I really reached the point where it wasn't that I wanted to end my life. I didn't want to die. I didn't want to, to kill myself. I just couldn't see a way for my life to continue in really the hell that it had become at um, at this point. And so I had a phone call with my uncle um, who, I don't know if you've seen Lord of the Rings, was a bit like Gandalf in Lord of the Rings. He, he wasn't there very often, but he just seemed to always turn up at just the right time, say just the right things and then disappear. And, you know, you spend the next half hour of the film thinking, well, if Gandalf was here, there wouldn't be any problems. Yeah. <laughs> um, but um, really we had this conversation where he helped me realize that if, if I wanted the circumstances of my life to change, like I wanted to recover from, from this illness, then I was going to have to be the one to do something about it. And it was kind of one of those tough love conversations where it definitely wasn't tea and biscuit sympathy and, oh, my God, it's so awful. I'm so sorry you're suffering so much. It was really, well, if you want it to change, it doesn't look like anyone else is going to change it. So you're going to have to become responsible for doing that. And that catalyzed a five-year journey where I ended up reading, I think it was something over 500 books on health and psychology, and um, I got into meditation and yoga and, you know, a whole kind of collection of things. And there was no one miracle cure. I mean, there was nothing close to a miracle cure on, on the recovery journey that I went on. But different things helped in different ways at different times. And I was able to piece together through nutrition, through psychology, through some alternative health um, methodologies, I was able to gradually find my way back to recovery. And by the time I'd recovered, so this was seven years after I'd, I'd first been diagnosed, I'd kind of somewhat accidentally and somewhat um, embarrassingly fallen in love with psychology along the way. I I describe my, my interest of reading self-help books and kind of positive psychology books in my late teens as being similar to most boys in their early teens and pornography. I didn't want anyone to catch me. I was I was embarrassed. <laughs> it just it felt like the kind of most uncool thing for a kind of, you know, 18, 19, 20 year old to go to the kind of bookshop and like buy up a load of of, of books. But I just I fell in love with the idea that it is possible for us to create change in our lives. And as my life started to change and evolve, and I started to understand many of the factors that had contributed to the very difficult situation I was in, and I'd started to see change from that, I just, yeah, it was it was kind of my first true love, which is, I don't feel embarrassed saying that now, but at the time it was, it was an awkward <laughs> thing. Um, and so then just to kind of end kind of this 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 part of the story, I then um, I wrote a book about my healing journey and, and the, the path that, that I had I'd been on. And I set up the Optimum Health Clinic um, and with a mutual friend of ours, Nikki Gratrix. Um, and it was a kind of surreal time, really, because this was 2003, 2004 that um, this was happening. And within six months, I guess, of starting the Optimum Health Clinic, we had something like four or 5,000 inquiries of people. And it was just, this was, wasn't obviously pre-internet, but it was pre-social media. It was pre-online health summits. It was pre-all of that. It was just this kind of crazy word of mouth that we seem to have some answers and we seem to be helping people. And in the years since then, 
Optum Health Clinic, I think, has become one of the world leading world's leading clinics specializing in fatigue. We've um, we have a team of 20 full time practitioners work with patients in um, over 40 countries um, around the world and have had this approach really of there is no one answer. There are lots of different answers to different people. And what we try to do is map and pull that together and build paths to recovery, which are pulling from all that knowledge, but are patient specific to the people that we're, we're working with. Um, so yeah, it's, it was a kind of an odd, an odd life transition, but um, I'm ultimately very grateful for it. Yeah, I mean, fatigue has a lot of different underlying root causes. And one of them is maladaptive stress, where your body is presented with a lot of different stressors that it has to adapt to or create a response to. And a maladaptive response to stress can you know, manifest in many different ways, including fatigue. So tell us what is maladaptive stress response or the maladaptive stress response and how is it created? Yeah, so this was a term that we started using quite early days um, in Optimum Health Clinic when we recognize that one of the things that often happens with people with medically unexplained illnesses is the nervous system goes into a state of hyperactivation. And it does that because it's trying to protect us. When we don't know what's wrong with us, why it's wrong with us, are we ever going to recover? Should we should we rest? Should we push ourselves? Should we try this? Should we try that? How am I going to feel tomorrow? Like the most everyday normal things in our life start to become a constant source of stress to the system. It's true to say that often people with chronic health conditions, and so broadening this beyond just um, chronic fatigue, there are certain underlying personality patterns which have been shown to be contributing factors. It's not that these things are the cause of it. The way I think about this is, it's like a boat with loads and you have too many loads on the boat and that's then what causes the system to, to sink. And those loads can be genetic loads, they can be environmental loads, they can be um, physiological things are out of balance and there can be the, the psycho-emotional elements. And so we recognize that people that have, for example, um, strong achiever patterns where they define their self-worth by what they do and what they achieve. So there's a constant kind of push in the system. Or people that have what we classify as a helper pattern, where their self-worth, again, has kind of been defined by what they do for other people. So there's this constant draining and depleting of one's kind of own well-being in the service and support of others. And so there can be and there are other examples of this, but these different personality patterns that can also predating someone developing chronic um, health issues can be a load and depleting on the system. And then when someone ends up in a in a kind of crash state of some sort or a kind of overloaded state, the the nervous system tends to go into exactly the opposite state of what it needs to be in. To heal. So if you think about it in, you know, in, the, in the simplest terms, the nervous system can be in a state of stress. So traditionally, we would talk about the kind of fight or flight response where we're responding to an immediate danger. It can also be in a state of healing where the sympathetic nervous system is calm, the parasympathetic system is, is kind of activated. And 
we can feel often if we're if we're in tune with ourselves we can feel the difference and we can also feel the difference in other people quite often when when their system is is highly agitated often when people are in maladaptive stress response we can get so normalized to being in that state there's a little bit like if you take a frog you drop it in a glass of boiling water it jumps out you put it in a glass of cold water and you gradually heat it up it doesn't notice the change in temperature and it stays in there and it, and it, and it gets fried this is not an experiment i'm recommending for obvious, <laughs> obvious reasons um but it's the same thing is true in our nervous system that we can get so used to being in that hyperactivated response and we could perhaps get into it in a bit that, that it has a massive impact upon the body's ability to heal Yes. Yeah. I mean, so many people are in this tired but wired state. They're stuck in their sympathetic dominant nervous system, the stress response, fight or flight. And like people's, you know, foot is on the gas pedal and they just can't get off of that. And we have so many different stressors in our environment. Even if people don't feel stressed, there's EMF and nutritional stress and financial stuff and emotional and family. We don't have enough time. Blue light. We're not sleeping enough, not getting regenerative sleep. There's, and not to mention infections and all the other stuff we have, you know, acting upon our body. And so let's talk a little bit about the direct effect of stress on healing. Because a lot of people, because of too much stress, find themselves get sick and then are still in this state of stress and can't like are in this kind of inertia where they can't heal and get better can you talk a little about that yeah there's there's a number of different ways that we can kind of think about this so we can think about it from the point of view of when the body is in stress the the body's resources are literally diverted away from things like digestive function so when we're in stress we tend to have an increase of blood supply to our to our limbs literally so we can fight or flight so there's all kinds of data that shows that things like digesting of food breaking down of nutrients that function just is no longer prioritized because the, the the fight or flight response is is a kind of primal response that was created when we were literally surviving running away from saber-toothed tigers and if you're being chased by a saber-toothed tiger digesting the woolly mammoth you had for breakfast is just not a physiological priority in in that moment and then in in kind of more recent kind of decades there's been a, a kind of surge of kind of research that's really been looking at investigating well let's really see the detail of how this works and there's there's one landmark study which i remember from my my psychology degree days which was 1986 by keacock laser was published in the journal of behavioral medicine and what they did was they took medical students and they did blood workups a month before exams and then on the day of exams. And you find a lot, a lot, of, and and you find with a lot of research, it ends up being medical students um, or at least students, right? And it's I, 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 one of my kind of memories of being at university was just the endless recruiting people to to, to various kind of studies. Um, but you can imagine what medical students are like on the day of exams. And it was this, this research was was kind of staggering at the time because it was where they were really starting to show this is not just like stress doesn't feel good. Stress isn't really good for you. Stress kind of affects your digestive function and various other things. They did it. The, the, the first study was on 34 medical students. And on the day of examinations, there were significant, not just 
just about statistically significant, but like really significant declines in a whole bunch of things, particularly things like natural killer cell activity. So you start to see that the, the immune system is just shifting its function when we're under stress. There's then um, another study, actually, I think that, that well um, captures this is research that was done looking at um, people who were caring for people which had um, dementia or kind of um, uh, mental health decline, let's say. And obviously, being in the role of a caregiver is inherently stressful. When you're going back to what I was saying as an example about the helper pattern, when you're taking care of somebody else, that becomes depleting and draining. So in, in, in this study, they did um, uh, biop biopsies on people to create a wound, three and a half millimeter biopsies. And what they found was that the group which were the caregivers took 24% longer to heal than those that were not. And that was the only difference that, they, that the two groups were matched for all other kind of things that, that, that you, you could match them for. So the only variable being that these people were caregivers, that's something that is a, is a, is a stress on the system, that healing was taking 24% longer in, in those cases. So we start to see that this is not just mind-body connection and people say, you know, stress isn't good and, you know, it's important to calm the system. This is a very real impact upon the body's ability to heal. When we then start to look at um, things like energy production, we need energy, by the way, for, for detox, for healing, for, you know, if we haven't got energy in our system, everything else starts to get affected by that. When the body is in a state of stress, it's, it's like being, you mentioned earlier the analogy, it's like being at the traffic lights and kind of, you're, kind of, you're revving the kind of engine the whole time, like the system the whole time is wired. You're just wasting fuel. You're wasting energy. And the body is no longer prioritizing energy production. It's no longer prioritizing detoxing. It's no longer prioritizing healing because it believes you are about to get eaten by a woolly mammoth or it believes that you're in some kind of immediate danger. I think we also, at this point, I think it's helpful to make a distinction between acute stress and chronic stress. So acute stress being that kind of example, you know, the kind of woolly mammoth example or the saber-toothed tiger example where we're, we're in immediate danger. And, you know, or we're, we're about to cross the road and we're not paying attention the way that we should. We're looking at our phone and we don't see the giant double-decker bus that's kind of hurtling towards us. And in that moment, it is totally appropriate that we get a hit of cortisol and adrenaline and our system pumps so we can either fight, but you probably wouldn't fight a double-decker bus, or we can flight, we can run away, or we can go into a freeze or, or, or a shutdown response. But in acute stress, what then will happen is the nervous system will naturally reset. The nervous system will calm down. We will realize that we've survived. No longer is the danger there. And the system will gradually come back into a normal state of balance and healing state. The difference with chronic stress is it's like we're being chased by the saber-toothed tiger all of the time. It's like the system gets so used to being in that state that like the frog example that I gave a little bit earlier, the system gradually gets more and more ramped up to the point that it then normalizes at a state of high stress, which therefore means our body is fairly consistently in exactly the opposite state that it needs to be for healing and detoxing to be able to happen.
Yes. Yeah. And it, this is just the state that a lot of people coming to me to detox are in. And, you know, I have to, you know, figure out different ways to reduce their stress load and help them identify all the different stressors that they have acting upon them. So they can get into that healing and detoxification state in that parasympathetic nervous system. And so you created a program that helps people do just that, identify all these stressors and help people to reset the nervous system. So can you talk a little bit about how people reset the nervous system and how you're helping people do that in your course? Absolutely. So uh, firstly, I should say that this work is is really the result of of getting on for several decades, but certainly clinically as a practitioner for um, 16, 17 years of really observing what works and what doesn't work. And I'm a very strong believer that theory is nice, like it's, you know, knowledge is a great thing. But the real edge is is clinical work. When you, and as you know, when you're working with people day after day, it's like it's all well and good pulling something out of a kind of textbook or a theory, but it doesn't work as <laughs> things are not often that simple when when you're working kind of one on one. And so this kind of this concept of of of, the, of reset and this reset program is really the result of thousands and thousands of patients of testing and observing and seeing what works and. There are elements of this that were clear at the start, and there are other elements that have become increasingly clear almost through the observation of the cases where th the, the, the basics or the obvious things were limited, let's say, in, in their effectiveness. So it's a kind of it's it's kind of one of those things that got bigger and bigger and bigger. And then it was the aha moments of kind of actually we can simplify this back to what are the key principles. So this idea of reset um, stands for to recognize. So we have to recognize the state that the system is in. We have to examine the thoughts, the patterns, the processes which are creating and triggering that state. We have to learn to stop and interrupt certain thought processes. So there are certain habits of thinking that get the brain wired up in certain ways. And we have to literally have a way of catching and rewiring those thought processes. We then have to work with the underlying emotional factors that are going on. One of the things that often happens is when we're in a high state of stress, we disconnect from our body. We disconnect from our emotions. So we don't then have that whole um, kind of um, landscape of information to inform how we feel. Do we need to rest? Is that detox going too fast? It, there's a whole set of information that we're just disconnected from. So we have to work and process our emotional kind of history and things that are in the way of that. And then the, the, the final step being transformation. There are, there are really two core underlying issues which tend to be behind much of this nervous system activation. One of which is I'm not lovable as I am, like I'm not enough. And that's this driver of constantly having to, to push, to be more, to help more, to kind of achieve more. And then the second one is that the world is not a safe place. Like we don't, at our core, we don't feel safe. And so this whole speeding up is a way of trying to compensate for that. You know, one of the ways, one of the strategies that people use to try and feel safe is 
if I can worry about every possible thing that can go wrong, think about all the possible ways I can handle that, then I'll get a feeling of safety. So we try to think our way to safety. The problem is the more we try and think our way to safety, actually, the more we activate the nervous system and the less safe that we feel. And a lot of people are in that state. I mean, do what is the payoff for that worry? Are people getting a dopamine hit or a cortisol rush? Or there's a lot of people that are stuck in that worry state and that they're in that because they get some sort of payoff from it. I think it's um, it's addictive. I think it, it's a chemical addiction that the nervous system has got used to having. And sometimes coming off that initially, there can be almost like a withdrawal. It's like we're so, we're so used to being tired and wired that you take away the wired and actually what you're left with is the underlying tired. And we have to then do some healing to to, to work through and, and to resolve that. Um, there's also um, often a kind of emotional payoff that by speeding up, we get away from difficult feelings and emotions that we haven't really been able to deal with and process. And so it's also an avoidance strategy that kind of works. Like if you manage to say so busy all of the time and your life is working well and you've got the energy to do it, you can just speed up enough that you never really have to feel anything. Um, the problem is for a lot of people with chronic health conditions, that strategy isn't working anymore. And you have to then therefore deal with the underlying pieces. Um, just to go back to kind of perhaps go through each of these elements a bit more, because yes. I kind of rushed through it yes, to give, yeah. a, give an, an overall picture. So this first step in terms of recognize, we really have to recognize what state our system is in. And one of the models that we, we use in the reset program, which, which, which can be quite helpful here, is um, Dr. Stephen Porges' polyvagal theory, which talks about really three states in the system. The first being safe and social, like that really what I was describing as being in a healing state, where we, in a state of safe and social, we we are we we put out and we tend to receive reassuring signs from the world so the world feels like a safe place and when someone's in that place normally they're quite easy to be around they feel quite welcoming they feel quite kind of supportive and easy we then have if the system starts to activate we then go into fight or flight and in fight or flight it's almost like tuning into a radio frequency where it's like radio station worry and anxiety like it's it's like we just tune in and then we're suddenly listening for and we're looking for the things that are dangerous because our body is protecting us like it's looking what are all the things that can go wrong and how do i keep myself protected and keep myself safe so in a state of fight or flight the, the research shows that often we will misinterpret signs in our environment because someone we might be walking down the street and someone gives us what we think is a kind of a, a funny look and actually they weren't looking at us at all they were just lost in in thought but we thought oh they're looking at me a bit funny and then our whole system starts to activate and we have a whole narrative that they're going to mug us and this thing's going to happen this is awful so we start to, we often misinterpret and we look for things that that are not there we start to distorts our environment because we're looking for the danger. There's um, a part of our brain called our reticular activating system. And what, what that does is it looks for what we teach it to look for. So it, it's, it's that experience where you, you get a new pair of, of shoes, let's say, 
And then you start seeing that brand or those shoes everywhere you go, or someone falls pregnant and they suddenly see babies everywhere. It's not like the babies weren't there before. It's just that now they're <laughs> activated and, 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 and they're looking for that. It, it's, it's like as an exercise that I get people to do sometimes where I get people to, to look around a room and look for a color. So people could do that now, look around the room. You can look for all the things that are blue in the room and people, you can close your eyes and you, and then the question is, tell me all the things in the room that were red. And it's like people can remember all the blue things, but they can't remember the red things because that wasn't what they were looking for. The brain has looked for something and it's collected that information. So when we're in fight or flight, we change how our brain is functioning. We look for certain things. The system becomes wired. We start to respond to things. Then the third stage in polyvagal theory is, is the shutdown response or the freeze response. And a classic example of that, I remember um, years ago watching a, a TV program and there was a, a kid being interviewed. It was maybe six or seven. And, and you know, others have been interviewed. They were kind of talking and the, the, the host turns to this kid and asks them a question. And the kid just literally freezes. It's just like kind of jaw. And they're kind of asking like, I don't remember what the question was. And the kid's just like, and they're just like, the whole system is just frozen. It's like it's gone into a kind of freeze response. Classic example of this is hedgehogs. What do hedgehogs do when, when, when the world is dangerous? They kind of shut down or tortoises, like the head kind of goes back in and they just kind of go into a frozen protected response. You know, some animals will, will fake death. They'll literally, and it's not like a cognitive thing where they go, oh, there's a, there's a, a lion chasing me. I should pretend that I'm dead. It's literally the parasympathetic the parasympathetic nervous system just shuts down the system. And so recognizing, like, where are we? Like, are we in a healing state? Are we in a state of safe and social where our nervous system is kind of responding appropriately? It's responding well to kind of cues. We feel safe and we feel like we want to be social. Or are we in a state of fight or flight? Are we kind of overactivated and we're kind of like the, the rabbit in the headlights that's kind of, you know, wants to kind of escape and get away? Or are we in, in a shutdown state? If we can recognize what state we're in, then we can start to take some action. It's the first step to be able to start to take some action to start to address this. And this goes back to what we were saying a little bit earlier, that we can get so normalized. And, and as you were saying, people can go, well, I feel tired and wired, but that's all we're really aware of. But if we can recognize, hang on, I'm in a state of nervous system overactivation, and all the things that we've been talking about, that's affecting healing, that's affecting energy production, that's affecting my immune system, affecting my digestive system. So then the next step becomes this stage of examine. We need to understand the how, like how is my system being pushed into this state? And then that goes into much more detail what we touched on around these different personality patterns. I mentioned the help and the achiever. There's, 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 there's other patterns, examples of that. We start to look at the different... Um, loads that are on us. Again, you mentioned around the different stressors, be it environmental stressors, be it nutritional stressors. So we've got to understand what are the ingredients that are going in to cause it to cause this state. The next thing we then come to is we need to break the pattern. Like the nervous system is 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 wired to be responding in a certain certain way, and this is. Um, this is a kind of automatic unconscious pattern that's happening. And it's a little bit like if you imagine, I don't know if you've ever had the experience of, of moving home or moving office and you've had a certain drive that you were doing, you know, twice a day, you know, in each direction every day for, for kind of years, then you move 
And then one day you kind of find yourself driving to the old house rather than the new house or the old office rather than the new office because you're just doing it unconsciously. We, we have to be able to have unconscious programs. Otherwise, every time you get to a door, you'd have to relearn how to open a door. Like, oh my God, what is this thing? Like how? But we just learn a program. We reach out, we turn a handle and these, these patterns happen unconsciously. So we need to, to interrupt, to break this habitual pattern of thinking. And if we think about neuroplasticity and how the brain functions, when we train a habit, we have a connection between two neurons in, in the brain. So it's like each time we do a habit or we have a consistent thought process, there's they're kind of the, that kind of pattern fires and those neurons are kind of being, being wired together. We need to catch the habit enough times and retrain it in a different direction that the brain then learns a different response. And the, the most effective techniques that, um, that I found over the years are some techniques that we've developed from areas like neurolinguistic programming, um, from elements of um, hypnotherapy, where we have a way of catching patterns, stopping them, shifting focus and calming the system. We have to do that enough times that then after a while, the brain gets rewired. So just like that example of you drive home to, to the new home having moved, you do that enough times and that becomes the new the new pathway and, and the new wiring. So we are learning to stop, to catch the thought processes, to retrain them. And by doing that, we are then training the nervous system to settle and calm and to, to come more towards being in a healing state. Yeah, and this is so important to discuss and to address, not only for people that are ill or have a diagnosis, but for people who are merely experiencing the beginning stages of fatigue or brain fog or feel stressed all the time. Because if you remain in that state, say you it's preclinical, you don't have a diagnosis, it's just irritating, you know, eventually, if you keep doing the same thing, same lifestyle, same diet, same patterns, your body is eventually going to continue to break down to where you eventually may have a diagnosis of some sort. So my, my urge to people, my plea to people is don't wait, heed the call, listen to your body. There's If you don't feel like you did 10 years ago, there's something going on. It's not because you're getting old. I think that that's a great point. And actually, that, that's a really good um, kind of opening to this this next bit of this reset model. So we've had recognize, examine, stop our emotional life. And one of the things that happens is we end up so disconnected from our emotions, from our bodies, from that information, that it's like the way that I, I sometimes describe it, it's like <clears throat> the body tries to get our attention. So it sends us a text message and we just go oh, I'm busy and we kind of ignore it. Yeah. <laughs> and then it sends us like three messages on, on WhatsApp and we're like, oh, whatever. And then the phone rings and we kind of send it to voicemail. And then the landline rings and the mobile rings and we just unplug the landline and turn off the mobile. And then we notice we've got 10 emails and we shut the, like, we just, there's like endless attempts to try and communicate and we just, we ignore. And so in the end, the body doesn't has, has got no choice. Like it's got more and more depleted over that period of time of trying to give us the information. And I think we also have to remember 
if we let's say at our optimum we had a hundred units of energy a day and let's say we were always trying to do to spend 105 110 so one of those people that was always kind of pushing the boundaries of what our body really had the energy to do and then as our body gets more and more depleted it becomes more and more toxic we get more and more fatigued our energy capacity goes from 100 to 90 to 80 to 70 so let's say now we're at 70 capacity we're still perhaps we're not trying to spend the 105 now because we just simply can't do it so we've now reduced our capacity but instead of being at 100 capacity and spending 105 we're now at 70 capacity and spending 75 and then that person walks into to you and me and and says but Wendy, I'm doing so much less than I was before. Like I'm, I'm resting in the afternoon and I'm doing my meditation practice and I reduce my stress at work. I'm so much calmer than I was. But if that person's pattern is that they're always still pushing the edge in what they think is them having restructured their life to support their healing process may still be that they're pushing beyond the capacity that's there. So we need to get our energy expenditure the demands we're placing upon ourselves below our current energy production we then have a surplus that surplus can be used for healing for building energy reserves to support the body's detox processes and then what should happen is our core capacity starts to increase but we need to have we need to shift that balance where we are creating more energy more resource in our body than we're spending to do that though we need to learn the language of our emotions, the language of our body, because otherwise we're just simply not getting the feedback. We don't know where those levels are because it's like we're saying to our body, this is what's going to happen and just tough luck deal with it, as opposed to that being a relationship that, that's in balance. But I think for a lot of people, they've, they've learned, be it through childhood, be it through the cultures that, that, that we live in, that they've learned that their feelings and their emotions and their body's information is not particularly important. It is more important to achieve the things you need to achieve. It's more important to be you know, a, a good husband, wife, parent, whatever the demand is. And of course, those things are, are important. But we learn that this information doesn't matter. And so there's a kind of chronic disconnect from our ourselves, really. And one of the challenges is as we start to to reconnect, we also then have to start to, to unpack and deal with some of this material that we've been disconnected from and has not been there. And so what, what I what I observe often happens with people is going back to the, this, this final step of, of, of transformation. This, and one of the key pieces that we, we deal with in the reset program is that if we've got this underlying feeling that the world is not a safe place. Like, and that may be because of um, kind of uh, overt kind of um, big T trauma abuse that we were sexually abused or physically abused or, or whatever as a child. Or it may be what I call trauma with a small T or kind of covert trauma or developmental trauma where there wasn't any one single event. There wasn't like, you know, a shocking event that happened. But we just didn't get the emotional holding and nourishment that, that we needed. Like we felt sad and we were told that feeling sad didn't matter and wasn't important. Or we needed 
physical holding and all the research that shows the power of physical touch for babies and for children and we needed physical holding and it just wasn't our family didn't do my family didn't do hugging didn't do touching i had to be taught how to hug by a friend at university when i was Aww. 18 years old i was like i just i know um, but bless my poor children that I get, probably get hugged to death <laughs> as, as a result but it's like it's like we have this um we have this kind of underlying sense that we don't feel safe, like the world is not a safe place. So going back to what I was saying a little bit earlier, what we then start to do is we speed up. We go back to that pattern we touched on around. We think about all the things that might go wrong to try and get the feeling of safety. The problem is safety is not in the mind. The feeling that the world is safe is a feeling like we feel. It's not, we won't say we think safe, we feel safe. The more we go in our mind, the more everything speeds up, the less safe we feel, the more we go into our mind and we speed up. So disconnection feeds disconnection because the more disconnected we get, the more we use the strategy that causes us to be disconnected, trying to get feel safe to get more disconnected. Equally, connection feeds connection. So we have to deal with some of these underlying issues. And as I say, the two core issues, the world's not safe, I'm, I'm not safe in the world, or I'm not enough, I'm not lovable as I am, therefore I need to do and achieve more or give more or care more or whatever it is to get that feeling. But you can't, again, just like you can't get safety by thinking your way to feeling safe, you don't get the feeling of being loved and being enough on the outside. In fact, the more that we that we get on the outside and it doesn't resolve the issues on the inside actually the more crazy making it becomes a lot of people have resistance to psychology especially when they have a physical health issue many people are looking for a physical resolution a protocol to do or a medication or a supplement something there must be a physical resolution to this physical symptom and i don't think people realize how much mindset and psychology plays a role and how so in in their health physical health issues and how when you address mindset address stress address through a like psychological method that people can then have a shift in their physical health when they've tried all these physical things that haven't worked. Can you discuss that a little bit? Yeah, I think it's a great point. And I think it's it's a it's a particularly um, fiery issue with um, fatigue related conditions. And, and I I get it. When I was ill, there was only very few things that would give me a short-term injection of energy and one of them was the inference that i was making up my condition or that it, it was it was in my mind um because i wanted to rearrange your face yeah. <laughs> that's why that's why it gave me energy <laughs> um and i think we have to make a really clear distinction between someone who is making something up like something that is that is not real and something where the state of our mind and our nervous system is 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 either inhibiting the, the healing of or directly impacting causing very real physical things that are happening. And I think this has been particularly confused in the in the fatigue world because 
the lack of a consistent biomarker for um, fatigue-related conditions has resulted in the kind of psychiatric population kind of hijacking, less so these days, but certainly for a number of years, hijacking both the research and, and the focus around it. And to me, it's the highest level level of medical arrogance when we take the position of we can't find anything wrong with you, therefore there must be nothing wrong with you. Or we can't find anything to help you get better, therefore there is nothing you can do to get better. I mean, when you really break it down, yeah. it's such a, it's just a just shockingly arrogant position um, for anyone to, to, to take. But the kind of result of it has been the lack of a biomarker has resulted in this kind of hijacking that it must therefore not be real. And this has led to a lot of cultural misconceptions and misunderstandings, which I think has only perpetuated the suffering of a lot of people that have chronic health conditions. Yeah, and then let me refer you to a psychologist because it must be right. in your head. <laughs> right, exa exactly. That's and not the psychology we're talking about here. <laughs> that's that's right. That's, very, that's, a, that's an important point. And, and of course, therefore, people, it's like not only now have they got this serious kind of deeply awful kind of health condition now because of this perception they're not even getting the emotional support like it's fascinating i've had patients over the years that have you know been on their their chronic fatigue journey and then you know sadly had for example a cancer diagnosis but what's been stunning for them is with the cancer diagnosis everyone's there and supporting can i can i cook for you do you need this how about this what what can, what do you what do you, what do you need what does the family need and it's just the kind of shock of but I, I was ill for 10 years and no one paid any, no one, everyone just kind of acted like nothing was wrong. So I think it's very, it's very understandable why there's so much reactivity around the role of psychology. And I think the point that, that, that you made when is a really important one, that there's a clear distinction between someone making something up or, you know, something like um, phantom limb pain where someone's had a, a limb lost a limb and they still have pain in the limb like they've lost a leg through an accident for example and they've got pain in toes that don't exist like that clearly is something that exists in in the brain and you know there's nothing physically we're ever going to do about that pain because <laughs> there's, there's no foot to, to, to have the pain in but what we're talking about here is very direct impacts of our minds and our nervous system on our physical body, impacts upon our immune system, impacts upon our digestive system, impacts upon our cellular energy production. Like there's, there's direct impacts on mitochondrial function of the system being in an activated state of, of, of stress. And so it's not that we're in a state of stress, therefore, we're making up all these things. These are very real physical realities that with good functional testing, you can absolutely test the impact on the mitochondria. You can absolutely test the impact on the hormones, the immune system. But the thing is, what is the what's the, the path to resolution of these real physical realities? And I've, I'm a very strong advocate that, as I said earlier on in, in my recovery story, there is no one thing. Like, I absolutely believe we need to take a multifaceted approach. If we've got, you know, impaired mitochondrial function, we need to look at what's the cause of that? Are there blockages? Can we give raw ingredients to support mitochondrial function? Is digestive function meaning that we're not breaking down food, therefore we're not giving the, the body the ingredients it needs to, to manufacture energy? So we absolutely need to look at that stuff. But 
if it takes 24% longer to heal from a biopsy just by the fact that not even measured activated stress, just by being a caregiver under stress in that situation, or if medical students have significant changes in immune system function just during exam stress, imagine the stress of living with a severe chronic illness or living with heavy toxicity that the body is not dealing with. That's a much deeper stress. And until, for many people, until we calm the nervous system, until we reset the function of the nervous system, you can take supplements and not absorb them. You can change food, but your body's not getting the energy from the food that you're eating. You can work on detoxing, but everything you take, the system overreacts to it. Because when we're in a state of sympathetic um, overarousal, we're much more likely to have reactions to chemicals, to food, to supplements. And when we calm this down, one of the things that we see is a calming of a lot of these reactions and responses. Yeah, and that's a very good point because when people's immune system is malfunctioning, which can have a lot of different uh, you know, origins like toxins and metals and other things, uh, many other things, that people start developing reactions to foods and reactions to supplements. That's a very good sign that your body is having a maladaptation to stress, mitochondrial dysfunction and, and other things as a result of different stressors that are acting upon our bodies. And I also love that point you made about how people that are chronically fatigued, that's not recognized with the doctors, friends and family aren't necessarily terribly supportive. And, 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 and eventually people also just kind of get tired of hearing about it. You know, I know, I know someone that has a pain syndrome and no one wants to hear about it anymore. And they actually have to go to a psychologist that specializes in just letting people talk about their pain syndrome um, because it's just, it's people don't get support for chronic fatigue syndrome, especially it goes on years and years and years. No one's rallying around you trying to help you. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that's, that's often the case. And I think also, you know, I would argue that I lost several years of my life of my refusal to accept that, that, that psychology could play a role in facilitating healing. And what I say to people is, really you have to act like a scientist and a scientist will test a hypothesis. So if your hypothesis is that my nervous system, which is obviously dictated by my mind and my emotions, has no role in healing, do some research of, you know, um, subject one, be your research on yourself. Like what happens if you learn some tools and techniques to calm your system? Do you see a change in how things function? Because otherwise, really what you're doing is, is you're taking a position without really checking out whether that position is is valid and, and true. And, you know, it's, I also think it's important to say that the sort of psychology that I'm, I'm talking about here is not kind of tea and biscuits, sympathy counseling, where you just kind of talk about how crap and how miserable things are, although there can be a place for that. And I'm not negating that. <laughs> it's, 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 I did it's, that it's, for a really long time. And it, yeah, it helps and, and, on some level, but it, there's a lot of other things you can do that are really move the yeah. needle a lot faster. That, that's right. You know, if, if, you, if you've just learned to completely ignore and reject all your feelings, having someone be empathic and caring towards your feelings will help them come to the surface. And then that, that has value. But we need to be more strategic than that. We need, we need to have tools. We need to have tactics. We need to have strategies. We'll actually will change 
the way that we are thinking, that will change the way that we are breathing, that will change the function of our nervous system, that will allow us to process the emotions that we're trying to avoid and escape from to allow us to come more deeply down and, and grounded in a safe and social state in our body. We need to deal with the underlying core wounds and core issues that mean that we feel that we need to be activated all, all of the time. And talking about that stuff might might create some awareness but it's not really going to change it we have to be you know just like knowing that we should you know eat to balance blood sugar or knowing that we should take certain supplements to help detox knowing that is not the same as actually following through on those actions the same is here knowing that your system is activated talking about the fact it's activated is not the same as actually resetting the system and calming what's happening so why don't you tell the listeners where they can find you, where they can do your reset program and, and work with you? Yeah, so we have just in the process of, of releasing a series of videos that takes what, what you and I have been, been talking about in this interview, but breaks it down into much more detail. There's, there's been things that I've been shooting over about the different personality patterns. In this series of videos, I go into the exact mechanism of how stress affects mitochondrial function and actually the science of, of, how, of how that works. Go into the different um, ingredients of what causes that maladaptive stress response and, and break it down in, 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 in some much more kind of um, helpful, practical ways because there's more time to do that. And then go more into the practical tools that we, we're talking about here in terms of resetting the system. So um, I think you can share with, with, with folks a, a link to sign up for that video series. That that, that video series is, is free, so people can you know go deeper and understand more of, of the science behind this. And then if people want to go further from that, they, they don't have to. They can just sign up for the free videos. But there is then a, a twelve week coaching program where I teach you the tools, the strategies, the models to so you can then work with yourself to switch off, to reset the system. You then, it's, it's, a, it's an interactive program. So there's the teaching modules, but then each week people send in their questions, their feedback, my team and I go through that. We then create videos in response to those questions. So it's an interactive program as we go through it. I also do mini film sessions with the participants in the program as we go so people can see me actually using techniques so people see the impacts of those. So it's it's a it's a kind of very powerful way of working with people all over the world but in a contained supported um action oriented program. Yeah, so and if anyone wants to learn more about it, go to myersdetox.com/reset and you'll learn more information where you can get the free video series or do the 12 to a 12 week coaching program because i think this is really important i think that reducing stress identifying stressors and learning how to reset your nervous system is one of the bases that people have to address in order to get better from whatever ails them if they can't detox if they have a diagnosis if they're trying to to feel better and you know improve their health or prevent disease no matter what they're doing they have to address reducing stress and it's a whole skill set you have to learn to do that so i applaud the work that you're doing thank you wendy and, and, I, and I think as a kind of final comment what i would say is that it may not be the only thing that someone needs to do. They may well need to, to for example, your work around detox and, and other approaches. 
But it may also be that not doing this work means that nothing else can have the effect that it needs to have because the system's not in a state that it needs to be in. And I think that, that that's a, a, an important way of people thinking about it. Yeah, and this is a foundational thing. I mean, this is something you want to do as a precursor to other things that you want to try protocols or or what have you. Uh, you, you have to reduce stress in your environment and identifying them and uh, you know learning this, this tool set to be able to reduce stress. Like, do you want to learn a skill or do you want to take a pill? <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> I, I want to learn a skill, frankly. Um, so again, uh, Alex, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. And everyone, thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in every week to the Myers Detox podcast, where we give you all the tools and strategies and skill sets and information to learn how to dramatically improve your life with alternative health information and lots of information on detoxification, of course. So thanks for tuning in. I'll talk to you next week.